Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Three Men in a Mystery. I'm one of your hosts, John Lord. And this is Mike Morford. And I'm Gray Hughes. July 31st, 1999. Teenagers J.B. Hilton Green Beasley and her friend Tracy Howlett got lost on their way to a party. They wound up in Ozark, Alabama. They used another payphone to call Tracy's mother to let them know they had been lost but were now heading home. However, they would never get home. The next morning, the car was found by local police. An investigator figures out there's a latch release for the trunk inside the car. He opens it. In the trunk were the bodies of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. They had each been shot in the head. That was almost 20 years ago. For me personally, it's a mystery that shouldn't be a mystery. It's time for answers for the families of these two young girls. If we do have DNA in this case, there is a very important aspect. There is a big company that's been hitting the news for solving numerous cases using genealogy matches based off DNA information. And they are called Parabon Nanolabs, and we have already been in contact with them. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Mike? If that DNA is from the killer, there's a way to track that back to the likely donor. And I think that's what Parabon can do in this case. One of the things we'd like to do is help facilitate that if we can. And hopefully get Parabon in touch with the proper authorities, see if they can work together and move this case forward. I think it's very important to look at all cases starting with known facts and void of wild speculation. That, that allows people to speculate reasonably based on a foundation of accurate visual and technical information. We've got Gray, who's a very detail-oriented technical expert when it comes to understanding maps, doing 3D recreations, We've got Morph, who is such a good people person. He's able to reach out, try to make contact. And when he does, once he gets people talking, there's some pretty amazing things that happen. So I think paralleling our three strong suits is going to bring something very different to this podcast than we've seen in the true crime podcast space. Subscribe to the podcast right now. We are three men in a mystery. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. Close to 2,000 women are killed every year in the United States by an intimate partner, and at least 50,000 worldwide. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence estimates that one in three female murder victims are killed by intimate partners. 
But the CDC estimates that 55% of female homicides are directly related to intimate partner violence. 22% of workplace homicides involve women and an intimate partner, as we saw with Mandy Lee Williams in episode 43. Women are 70 times more likely to be killed in the two weeks after leaving an abusive relationship and 500 times more likely as they are trying to leave. About 15% of domestic violence homicide victims were pregnant or had recently given birth. Shelby Wilkie falls into all of these groups. Her daughter was three months old when her husband murdered her. He had assaulted her previously while she was pregnant, and she was murdered as she was trying to leave. Michael Wilkie went on local news stations and blamed Shelby's sudden disappearance on postpartum depression. During a police interrogation, he broke down and claimed that she committed suicide and then he burned her body instead of calling 911 because he said she had always wanted to be cremated. The son of a bitch was gaslighting her even after her death. Welcome to episode 45, The Murder of Shelby Wilkie. Situated in the mountains of western North Carolina, Hendersonville lies 22 miles south of Asheville and has a population of around 13,000. The town and Henderson County are named for North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Leonard Henderson, who served from 1829 to 1833. Another judge named Mitchell King donated the 50 acres to establish the town of Hendersonville in 1847. His slaves laid out the 100-foot-wide main street for the small town. Obviously, this was 14 years before the American Civil War would abolish slavery. Hendersonville has many historic neighborhoods and sites beyond Main Street. It's known as the City of Four Seasons because of the gorgeous snow in winter months, many flowering trees and plants in the spring, warm summer months, and breathtaking fall foliage. The mild climate allows for snow on the peaks, while temperature highs in the month of June are only in the 80s. There is an abundance of parks and lookout bluffs located in the area with vistas of the Blue Ridge Mountains. There are many museums to go along with the historic sites, but the town is mainly known for its annual North Carolina Apple Festival, which culminates in the Apple Parade that draws some 50,000 spectators. It is a beautiful place to live and raise children, and that is all that Shelby Ann Sprouse Wilkie had ever wanted. Dark-haired, with a wide and friendly smile, Shelby was born March 2, 1973, in Atlanta, Georgia. She was living with her parents, Bill and Barbara Sprouse, in Panama City, Florida, when the recession hit in 2008. She moved with her parents to Hendersonville. The cost of living was way more reasonable in the gorgeous small town. Shelby had a lifelong love of music that led her to a career in the industry. In 2010, she was a business manager for 96.5 FM Asheville Radio Group. Her co-workers described her as being very upbeat and an outgoing woman. She was close to her family and very close to her mom, whom she spoke to on the phone every day. But Shelby longed for a husband and children. She was very open about her desires for a family. She was 36 years old and felt her clock ticking. So she started online dating. She met a man named Michael Leroy Wilkie and embarked on a whirlwind romance, marrying him only two months later. Michael Wilkie was 37 years old from North Carolina and was divorced. He had shared custody of a daughter from a previous marriage. He worked the night shift at Wilson Art International in Asheville. To a lot of people, he seemed like a good catch. 
Tall and relatively attractive, he was friendly, charming, and even considered soft-spoken. He had a good job and took care of his daughter. On paper, things looked differently. He was actually twice divorced. His first wife had filed domestic abuse charges on him back in 1998, and his second wife, Amanda Casey, had also left due to abuse in 2008. Of course, Shelby didn't know any of this when she fell into the impetuous relationship. It's not even clear she knew about his first wife. Naturally, she knew about Amanda due to the shared custody of Amanda's daughter, who would have been about five years old when the two first met. Amanda stayed quiet about her past with Michael Wilkie. She hoped and prayed that he had changed, and maybe it was just their relationship that had brought out the worst in him. But Shelby Wilkie called her just a few months before her death asking questions about Michael's past, and she replied, sure, if there's anybody who knows what you're going through, it's me. But she had an appointment she had to get to and told Shelby to call her back. Shelby never did. And Amanda was horrified that the next time she heard Shelby's name was on the evening news when she was reported missing by her parents, January 2nd, 2012. At this time, I'm going to pause for a short commercial break. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shelby and Michael's marriage had been quick. They probably wanted to capitalize on the once-in-a-lifetime date of October 10, 2010, 10-10-10 being their anniversary date. Shelby was flushed with new love and anxious to start a family. Though friends and family worried it was too soon, Shelby was so happy. Nobody wanted to dim that light with their reservations. Unfortunately, the quickie wedding quickly dissolved into abuse. Just weeks after their marriage, Shelby filed her first complaint and motion for a domestic violence protection order, also known as a DVPO. On October 27, 2010, she filed the complaint citing two incidents. First, Michael dumped her dog off on the side of the road. I read a different news article that said he sold her pure breed dog to a bookie to pay off gambling debts. I was unable to confirm that accusation, but clearly, something had happened with Shelby's dog if she told this to the police. It's a common tactic with abusers to torment their victims' pets. It's often why women won't leave. Not all women's shelters accept pets. I could not imagine leaving my dog under any circumstance, so I completely understand this. Couple this with the isolation of abuse, often the dog is their only companion. But it would seem in this case, Michael did it for cruelty or to pay a debt. Shelby never got her dog back. When Shelby found out what really happened to her missing dog, she and Michael started fighting in their bedroom. She said he had trapped her in the room, snatched her cell phone out of her hand, and tried to forcefully remove her wedding rings. This would become a common refrain in his abuse. He had an obsession with those rings and always tried to pull them off her hand when they were fighting. 
Shelby's filed complaint and motion was granted, but she eventually rescinded it herself. Michael called her crying and begging for forgiveness. She was not willing to give up on her marriage yet. She thought she could change him, that it would just take time. But just six months later, on March 30th, 2011, she filed her second complaint and motion for protection. The fight began when Shelby asked him about his finances. Michael had refused to have a joint bank account with her, and she thought he was hiding something. She reported that Michael slammed her on their bed and forcibly held her there. He again tore her cell phone from her hand as she tried to call 911, throwing the phone against the wall. At this point, Shelby was 12 weeks pregnant with their child. Her face was covered with bruises and cuts. This time, Michael was charged with assault and agreed to attend anger management classes at Mainstay, a domestic violence prevention agency. Shelby was scared, but she was angry. But she still didn't leave Michael. He called her crying, begging her to let him come home. Her mother said that his crying and sobbing really got to Shelby. It, quote, really seemed to touch her heart. But she continued to relate worrisome incidents to her mother and friends. A work colleague who would later testify against Michael said that her usually bubbly friend became withdrawn and subdued. Once her friend Dawn started seeing bruises, Shelby told her the truth. Once, Shelby had a scarf that was doing a terrible job of hiding bruises on her neck. She confided to her friend that Michael had choked her until she passed out. Her friend was horrified, but complied with Shelby's pleas to not say anything. I want to be really clear about what I'm about to say. I'm not blaming Shelby's friend or any other friends of domestic abuse victims when faced with this situation. I'm just not sure that friends understand the implication of strangulation. Domestic abuse comes in all forms. It's not even always physical. Coercive control is just as insidious. Professionals prefer that this assault be called strangulation to differentiate from choking. Choking is what happens when you get food lodged in your throat. Strangulation is when an abuser places hands around your throat and squeezes, either as a control tactic or trying to make you lose consciousness. But it's important to mention this distinction in language. When I covered the Ashley Scott case in Episode 5, I got an email from a domestic violence counselor who was upset that I had used the word choking. I do understand her point, but as I answered her, many people associate the word choking with strangulation. The two are often interchangeable as far as language is concerned, despite what terminology professionals would prefer that we use. Shelby described her assault as choking. This is what her friend heard and later testified to. I don't think that the word matters. The act is patently obvious. What her friend didn't know is how dangerous Shelby's relationship was becoming. Her friend showed up with bruises, but often minimized the violence or insisted they were working things out. Strangulation or choking or any other word that would signify someone cutting off a person's airway is an extreme warning sign. Domestic abusers often escalate, but strangulation is one of the biggest indicators that the victim will eventually be killed. Think about it. The man you love, who says he loves you, holds you down with his hands around your throat. You can't breathe. You start to panic. The room starts spinning and eventually goes black. If you're lucky, you wake up with bruises around your neck. And it doesn't have to be a man. Domestic violence affects all demographics, all races, all sexualities. Shelby's friend didn't know how dangerous the sign was, or maybe she would have reported it. 
another common factor in domestic violence. Not only do victims minimize, but they repeatedly tell their friends and family that they are handling it. Shelby repeatedly assured Dawn that she was working on her marriage, and that if the abuse didn't stop, she had a plan to get out. I'm imploring you now, at the risk of a friendship, please report this abuse if a friend ever confides it in you. I understand that your instinct is to listen to your friend's wishes, but strangulation or choking is one of the biggest indicators of domestic violence homicide. Her time could be limited. If you care about her, speak up. I'm sorry for the aside or rant, but every time I cover a domestic abuse case, there is always an incident of strangulation in the relationship. It doesn't even mean it's the way they will kill their partner, but it's a start. The power of holding someone's life in your hands is addictive. This behavior will escalate. But back to Shelby's timeline. She gave birth to her daughter, Sydney, on October 8, 2011. She was overjoyed to meet the child she had dreamed of, and she thought despite all their problems, this baby would change things. Sydney would be the band-aid they needed. Sadly, she couldn't be more wrong. Less than two weeks after she gave birth on October 19th, Michael attacked her again. It was the same story, slamming her into a wall, snatching her cell phone, trying to pry her wedding rings off of her hand. She had been trying to leave and was going to take the baby. This time, Michael actually called the police on Shelby. He told the 911 operator to send someone out because his wife was drinking and acting crazy. Shelby's brother showed up to help her, and Michael wouldn't let him touch the baby either. When the police got there, they made Shelby take a breathalyzer test, which proved Michael was lying. She was sober. The police on scene then helped Shelby and her brother leave with the baby. Despite Michael's sobbing and apologizing, she was done and she left. Shelby went to the courthouse the following day to file yet another request for a restraining order. This time she was denied. Records are unclear why, and I find this even more troubling, because she had her brother as a witness, if not to the violence, then to the apology for the violence. But perhaps it was because she had willingly dismissed previous charges. She changed her mind. Personally, I believe the police should have taken these claims much more seriously, especially considering her previous complaints. I can understand how multiple complaints could be dismissed if no charges were followed up, but I don't think it's the right thing. I wish our laws across all states would prosecute these charges with or without the victim's consent. But the cumulative effect of multiple complaints only seems to numb authorities when it should alarm them. And Shelby had followed up on one charge. That fight when she was pregnant led Michael to plead to an assault charge, and he agreed to anger management therapy. But getting nowhere at the courthouse, she went to Mainstay, where Michael had gone for the court-ordered treatment. She was hoping that this latest assault was a violation of their program, and it would send him back to jail. It didn't work because the cops hadn't pressed charges for this latest fight. Shelby Wilkie was in trouble. She knew it. Her family knew it. Her friends knew it. But no one really knew what to do about it except to beg Shelby to leave her husband. That's a natural reaction. Leave immediately. You can stay with me. You have to get out of there. But it's never that simple. There are money issues, housing, especially if there are children, and so many factors that make women decide to stay. Even the decision to leave without a beloved pet will change a woman's mind. But though Shelby was denied this last order of protection, she was resolved. She wanted out. 
she signed a lease on a house in Black Mountain, North Carolina, just 40 minutes east of Hendersonville. And she told her family. They knew all about the new place. The original plan was for Shelby to tell Michael after Thanksgiving, and then the family would move her out sometime in December. But for some reason, Shelby waited. The holiday season has an effect on a lot of us. Maybe she couldn't bear to do it at the holidays. Maybe he was being nicer because of the holidays. Maybe she didn't want her daughter's first holiday season to be in the middle of a nasty breakup. There is no way to know. At this time, I'm going to pause to hear a word from our sponsors. If you've ever had a migraine, you know it's the worst. I've suffered from debilitating migraines since I was a teenager, and finding a medication that works is difficult. Different treatments work for different people. Cove is making that part of migraines a little easier. You can find a treatment from the comfort of your own home. Cove starts with a consultation by a licensed physician, and then the prescription is mailed right to your door. Migraines are personal, therefore each treatment plan is too. After your consultation, your doctor designs your individual course of treatment, and then Cove reaches out to you a few weeks later to see how you're feeling. Understanding migraines, the causes and symptoms, is the most overwhelming and confusing part. Cove breaks down everything you need to know about your migraines and about migraine treatments. Your Cove doctor is licensed to practice medicine in your state and will be the one who prescribes your monthly medication and oversees your progress. All migraine medication prescribed by the doctors at Cove is FDA approved. If you suffer from migraines, you know just how miserable it is to sit in a waiting room while you're in pain. With Cove, there's finally a better way to get the help you need when you need it. Southern Fry listeners, I have a special link for you to get your first month of treatment for free. Go to withcove.com slash southernfried. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash southernfried. Get started today before the next migraine hits. Go to withcove.com slash southernfried. Is there something bothering you? Is it interfering with your happiness or achieving personal goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp has over 3,000 licensed therapists in all 50 states treating depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, grief, and other issues that so many of us suffer from. From your phone, laptop, or tablet, you can connect with a professional counselor via text, chat, phone, or video. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time with no additional charges, and anything you share is confidential. And with that security is also affordability. There is even financial aid for those who qualify. Why not get started today? Southern Fried listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code SOUTHERN. Go to betterhelp.com southern and fill out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs to match you with a counselor who can help you. That's betterhelp.com southern. On New Year's Eve of 2011, Shelby spent the day shopping with her mother, going to lunch at Cracker Barrel. Her mom, Barbara, witnessed a phone call between Shelby and Michael. She wasn't sure what was said, but Shelby became visibly upset and vocally frustrated. She took the baby back to his house and then went back to her parents' home to ring in the new year. This isn't that unusual. Many abusers focus only on their wives and would never hurt their children. Shelby obviously felt Michael wasn't a danger to her three-month-old daughter. After all, she had witnessed his relationship with his now eight-year-old daughter. He had never raised a hand to her. 
She had no reason to believe he would hurt Sydney. She just needed to remove herself from the situation. So she did. She spent that night ringing in 2012 with her family. She truly believed she was getting a new beginning. The new year has a heady effect on many people. We start new diets, vow to stop bad habits, and decide to change damaging relationships. But after the ball dropped, Shelby went home to her husband. Around noon the next day, she sent her mom a text explaining that she wanted to try again. Please don't be mad. I want to make this relationship work. I want this for me and Sydney. Her mom tried to convince her not to do it, that Michael wouldn't change, but Shelby still wanted to try. At 4.48 p.m., Barbara received another text from her daughter. Shelby said things had taken a turn for the worse. They were fighting again, and this time Michael managed to get her rings off of her finger. Shelby had recently told friends that she planned to pawn those rings for the extra money she needed to leave the relationship. Shelby had recently told friends she planned to pawn those rings for the extra money she needed to leave the relationship. So it wasn't just the point. It wasn't just the symbolism. Shelby wanted and needed those rings, and Michael had finally gotten them away from her. She had even recently discussed hiding the rings so that if a fight started, he couldn't try this. After the text, her mother was worried. She called. No answer. She texted, Are you okay? Shelby answered with one word, Yes. And her mother was chilled to the bone. Shelby didn't answer in one-word texts. She kept trying to call, but the phone went to voicemail. Shelby finally texted her and told her that she would call her the next day. Again, her mom found this text suspicious. It was cold and personal, and Shelby always ended each text with love you. This wasn't her daughter answering her. She felt it in her bones. On January 2nd, Shelby's dad was determined to find out what was going on. He and Shelby's brother went over to the Wilkie house. No one was there, and they saw no signs of disturbance. While they were there, Michael pulled up in the driveway. He said that Shelby was at work and that she intended to work late. Her dad and brother went along with this and left, driving immediately to Shelby's workplace in Asheville, all along knowing that January 2nd was still a holiday. New Year's Day was Sunday that year, and Shelby's work gave their employees that Monday off for the holiday. But they went anyway just in case. There was no sign of Shelby's black SUV, and no one was at the station. They immediately returned to Hendersonville and went to the county sheriff's department and filed a missing persons report. Henderson County officers went to the Wilkie home on Moody Street to conduct a welfare check. Michael gave them the same story he told her family, that she had gone to work and wasn't back yet. But they noticed that he was sweating profusely and also had some scratches on his face. They did search the home, but found nothing suspicious. The next day, a violent crimes detective with the department interviewed Michael. This time, he admitted the scratches were from Shelby, but still, they didn't arrest him. Michael Wilkie appeared on local news channels that day, crying and begging for Shelby to come back to him. He implored the public to call in with tips. It was a disgusting display. He said that Shelby was suffering from postpartum depression and that he was desperately worried for her well-being. It was all bullshit. On January 4th, the police served and executed two search warrants, one for the Wilkie home on Moody Street and one for Shelby's vehicle. The SUV had been missing, but was finally found in a restaurant parking lot near the airport in Asheville. Video footage from the parking lot showed Michael Wilkie parking the SUV and walking away. 
they knew they had him. The search of the Wilkie home was even more disturbing. In the backyard, they found a rectangular patch of ground that was burned. And then the next-door neighbor walked over and told the police what he had seen. Jose de Leon said he went to the movies with his wife and kids on the evening of New Year's Day, January 1st, 2012. When they got home around 10.30 p.m., he said a nearly 15-foot-tall bonfire raged behind their home. His wife was concerned because it looked too close to their own yard and swing set. De Leon went out and watched and saw it was in the Wilkie yard, though it was close to his, and he saw a man adding stuff to the fire and stoking it. He didn't call the police because he didn't want to start a neighborhood battle over the fire. The next morning, the fire was out, and he saw the 55-gallon drum still smoking in the backyard. Now, two days later, the burn barrel was gone, but investigators weren't finished. Luminol tests in the house told an even more horrifying story. There were large amounts of blood in the bedroom. One splash seemed to have even reached all the way across the room. And even more chilling, they found a perfect silhouette on the wall in blood. It looked like a person kneeling, slumped over, possibly dead. The Luminol also showed drag marks leading to the living room and out the front door. Further search of the home turned up Shelby's wedding rings on top of the refrigerator. Those damned rings, the rings he always tried to rip away from her in a fight, the rings she fought to keep because she needed the money. He had them, and he had hid them away, but not well enough. The next day, on January 5th, the police executed a search warrant on Michael's parents' home on Canuga Lake Road in Hendersonville. Investigators quickly found the 55-gallon drum with ashes in it and what appeared to be bone pieces. They also found a spot further back on the lot with more ashes that had been dumped. Unfortunately, the medical examiner could not draw DNA from these samples. Shelby's body had been burned beyond this kind of testing. But you know what did survive the fire? A Tiffany Diamond tennis bracelet. Barbara Sprouse had given one to her daughter and to her two daughters-in-law. They were identical. The bracelet was charred and misshapen, but still positively identified as a match to the other tennis bracelets in the family. Any other evidence of Shelby's body was never found. But now the police had enough. On January 5th, the next day, they asked Michael Wilkie to come in for an interview, and he complied. He spent much of the time crying and wailing about the loss of his wife. Video footage of his interview is infuriating. He insisted he didn't know what had happened to her and that he hadn't hurt her. His interrogator, Detective Andrew Anderson, casually suggested that maybe Shelby had committed suicide. Michael pounced on this and, sobbing, told the detective that his wife had slit her wrists with a razor blade. Detective Andrews knew he had him. He quickly asked why they found evidence of Shelby's body in the burn barrel at his parents' house. Michael then, incredibly, said that he was only trying to fulfill his wife's wishes. He said she had always wanted to be cremated, so he burned her body to abide by her instructions. It was ludicrous. Even if this was true, why wouldn't he call 911 when she slit her wrists, if he had witnessed it? Even if she had died, why didn't he call authorities? Who disposes of their wife in a backyard burn barrel, regardless of how she may have died or what her final burial choices were? He claimed that he didn't call the police because of past domestic violence charges with his wife Amanda. Michael claimed that Shelby took Ambien to go to sleep, and then got in their bathtub and slit her wrists. Even his cover story didn't remotely match the blood evidence. The investigators found nothing in the bathroom. 
The blood and disturbing silhouette on the wall were both in the bedroom, and the drag marks went from the bedroom to the living room. Michael Wilkie couldn't even come up with a believable lie about his wife's supposed suicide. He had tried to clean up the crime scene. It's why the first officers on the welfare check had missed the signs. There were no obvious signs of violence. That is until Luminol told its story. There had been a vicious life-and-death struggle in that bedroom. With the amount of blood spilled, it would seem that Shelby fought desperately for her life. Even then, Michael said that the blood could have been from his ex-wife Amanda, who he now admitted to abusing. He said she had bled in that room, as had Shelby. He was now willing to admit to domestic violence, but not to murder. He will stick to that story to this day. A few minutes after his revelation about Shelby's suicide and his supposed cremation of her body, an officer walked into the interrogation room and officially arrested him, handcuffing him. Michael Wilkie was quickly indicted for first-degree murder. This may have technically been a no-body case, but police and the prosecution were betting that Michael's admission about Shelby's supposed suicide, along with a charred bracelet, would prove him a liar in court. With pre-trial hearings and other court formalities, the trial for Shelby Wilkie's murder didn't start until January of 2015, three years after her brutal murder. During the trial, the prosecution submitted over 100 items into evidence and called dozens of witnesses to the abuse in the Wilkie marriage. And the prosecutor was an attorney named Greg Newman. Before he went to work in the district attorney's office, he had been a divorce lawyer. Shelby Wilkie had come to him to draw up a formal separation agreement because she was leaving her husband. As soon as Mr. Newman started at the DA's office, he specifically asked for Shelby's case. He wanted to see it through for her and her family. Shelby's work friend, Don Creaseman, was finally able to help her friend, describing the frequent bruises, the change in demeanor, and the story about Michael strangling Shelby until she passed out. Shelby's mother was another credible witness for the prosecution. Though the defense later argued that her testimony was largely hearsay, she was compelling. And her witnessing the phone call on New Year's Eve wasn't hearsay. She also showed the jury a replica of the tennis bracelet that Shelby had been wearing. One of her daughters-in-law had given it to her to wear to court. Other friends and family testified to the same sort of stories about the Wilkie marriage. Despite actual DNA evidence or a body, the prosecution had a very compelling case. They had Shelby's repeated complaints to the sheriff's department, testimony from friends and family, her charred tennis bracelet as evidence of her body, and finally, Michael's own admission to investigators. Though his attorney fought valiantly to keep that evidence out, Michael's exculpatory admission regarding Shelby's supposed suicide was on record, as was his admission of burning her body. He could claim not guilty all he wanted. He could claim she committed suicide. No one believed him, and certainly not this jury. Michael Wilkie waived his right to testify on his own behalf, and his defense rested right after the prosecution, choosing to not submit any evidence. The jury only took 35 minutes to convict Michael Wilkie of first-degree murder, sentencing him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The trial had only lasted three days. Michael Wilkie's guilt was written in blood, his character witnessed by countless witnesses. Shelby's death finally caught this predator, and there were plenty of people ready to condemn him. The family participated in a 2020 segment, with even his ex-wife Amanda Casey being interviewed. Michael Wilkie was exposed for the serial abuser he was. 
Amanda regretted not warning Shelby, though she had naively prayed she wasn't suffering the same abuse. Michael Wilkie had a pattern of abusing and controlling the women in his life, from his first wife, who filed a complaint in 1998, to Amanda Casey, who had married Michael in 2004, but fled under his abuse in 2008, leaving their three-year-old daughter behind. When she recovered, she got an attorney and sued Michael Wilkie, gaining shared custody of their daughter. As much as she wanted to warn Shelby, she didn't want to rock the boat. They finally had an agreement. She had remarried and felt safe. It wasn't that she ignored Shelby's predicament. She just prayed it wasn't the same as when she was married to Michael. But Shelby's call to her just a couple of months before her murder would validate all of Amanda's worries. She felt terrible for not reaching out again, but also resolved in her choices. She had moved on with her life, and she had to co-parent with this man. She was doing the best she could from what she could see of the relationship. But now she bitterly regretted not following up on that phone call with Shelby. Shelby Wilkie's daughter, Sydney, was adopted by her brother, Bill Sprouse Jr., against Michael's wishes. She will not be visiting her father in prison. And she is a gift to this family. Jan, Bill's wife, said, quote, Shelby referred to her as her angel, and we all feel she really is a little angel because she's kept our family together and given us a reason to smile. Everyone in her family is moving on and honoring Shelby's life. Her parents work as domestic violence advocates and are trying to get a bill passed for a domestic violence registry similar to the sex offender registry in North Carolina. Our government spends more than $27 billion a year to fight HIV, which affects around 1.2 million Americans. And yet we spend less than $1 billion a year to curb domestic violence, which affects more than 46 million Americans. I'm not in any way disparaging the amount of money we spend fighting HIV. I'm extremely happy that our nation has come so far destigmatizing the disease and working towards a cure. No, I'm just concerned with the disparity. 46 million Americans, men, women, and children, are affected a year. Close to 2,000 women will die. In 20% of domestic violence homicides, it's another family member or child that is killed, either trying to intervene or just being caught in the middle. On a typical day, domestic violence hotlines nationwide receive over 20,000 calls. But despite the alarming statistics, domestic violence still feels like an invisible crime in America. In October of 2018, on the second day of National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the president told the press gathered on the White House lawn, it's a very scary time for young men in America when you can be guilty of something you may not be guilty of. This is a very difficult time. His remarks were in reference to sexual assault charges, but I believe his words illustrate a larger problem in our culture. He claims it's a scary time to be a man, but in reality, it's a dangerous time to be a woman. Violence against women is not taken seriously, and sadly, domestic violence and sexual assault often go hand in hand. And as much as our legislation needs an overhaul, it really is a cultural problem. Many domestic abuse experts feel that education should be our focus. Katie Ray Jones, CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, is working on programs and other hotlines aimed at younger adults. She would like for education to start in elementary school, or at least around the sixth grade. She said that middle schoolers are already experiencing controlling or coercive behavior, verbal and even physical abuse. We need to reach these kids early, girls and boys. 
teach our boys not to follow the abusive patterns that they may witness at home, and teach our girls to reach out for help if they are abused. We need to destigmatize the shame of domestic abuse. It's difficult to overcome centuries of learned behaviors, but we can do it. We just need to make changing our culture a priority for our children. And the best way to spark change is education. We could save and change many lives by making education on domestic violence and sexual assault a part of our required curriculum in our schools. It won't change things overnight, but it's a hell of a start. If you or someone you know is suffering with intimate partner abuse in the United States, please call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Services for the UK, Australia, and Canada are listed in today's show notes. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Listeners, I will be in Fort Worth, Texas on March 30th for a meetup at The Yard. Other podcasters attending are Erica, Vincent, and Christina from the Gone Cold podcast, Aaron and Shay from All Crime No Cattle, and Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. So come on out if you're in the area. Once again, we will be at The Yard in Fort Worth, meeting at 6 p.m. on March 30th. And I would like to send out some love to a special listener named Cassie and her mother. I am so very sorry for the loss of your brothers. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you and your mom and Michelle in Fort Worth. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm on most large platforms like Stitcher, as well as a new podcast app called Himalaya. If you're interested in supporting the show, I have a Patreon page with many different rewards for different levels of donation. Or you could visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com, where you can make a one-time donation just by hitting the donate button. I've recently updated the site, and you can now buy stickers, t-shirts, hoodies, and even onesies for babies, all in one place at southernfriedtruecrime.com. If you have any comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email me at southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, and I'm always looking for new cases, so please feel free to reach out. I'm also all over social media. Just search the show name in your favorite platform if you'd like to connect with me there. If you're interested in discussing this case or any other episodes further, please come check out my discussion group. It's linked to my Southern Fried True Crime Facebook page. We don't just discuss cases. We share memes, make friends, talk about current events and crime, and laugh at all things Southern. We'd love to have you. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.